Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. And I have to admit, I'm going slightly stir crazy. I've been sitting at this desk for three months now watching the world go by here in Brixton, London. Um, one week to go till I get to go on holiday and see something different. And I really need it. Uh, I'm sure lots of lots of you are in the same boat. Just I thought I would never get tired of working from home, but actually, finally, I think it's beginning to happen. I need to see something else. Anyway, let's get back to the main story and talk you through the week's posts. So the first one was a guest post by Jordi Vaquer, who is Director for Global Foresight and Analysis at the Open Society Foundations, which is George Soros's lot. Um, <clears throat> Jordi is really interesting. I was on a seminar with him, uh, webinar, whatever you call him, uh, a few uh, a month ago, and he was just really interesting. So I asked him to write something about what he was talking about. And what he was talking about was a scenario exercise. Um, he is director for Global Foresight. I'm not usually a big fan of scenarios, but I thought these were really good. And he talked about it being foresight conversations that deliberately force us to stretch our imagination in divergent directions. And so what the OSF and Geordie have come up with is four possible futures coming out of COVID. Um, there's the sort of back to normal one where we just go back to the status quo ante, the world as it was, rising inequality, rise of China, slow disintegration of the US and the transatlantic alliance and sort of things like that. Um, authoritarian winter where, you know, a lot of bad guys of what different kinds profit from the chaos and uh, the um, uh, the crisis created by the pandemic to, to seize far more power. We go into a, a big authoritarian winter. Um, democratic renewal, a sort of comparison would say something like Second World War in many countries where people say, we want to build back better, we want a new future. Um, you know, and a lot of advocacy and campaigners are pinning their hopes on that. And then the darkest of all is a downward spiral of disintegration where, you know, um, national authorities just lose it and fragmentation is the order of the day. Um, and he says at the end, the typical answer we get as we lay out these four scenarios is the most likely scenario is a combination of all four. But this misses the point. This is not an exercise in probability. We are not trying to predict the future. We are encouraging exploration of each of the four extremes and its potential implications. So this is when scenarios work, I think. They're basically a trip to the brain gym, which get you to think a bit more widely and then hopefully be able to spot elements of these four different scenarios or other futures quickly as they emerge and respond to them. So a lot of people found that post very helpful um, and I thought it was really good. Um, the next one uh, was by me, and it's called Where is the Aid Business Making Progress on Localization? So localization is one of these words which describes um, the, in this case, the humanitarian sector, the emergency response sector, pushing power and money to first responders, to people on the ground, to local civil society organizations, and not swallowing up all the money in these big international aid systems. Um, and interestingly, I'd be, yeah, there's been a spate of reports about this and I've been reading about them and, and talk a bit about them on this post. But I start, but I also was listening to uh, a quite a challenging webinar on um, racism and anti-racism in aid. Um, and a couple of the uh, uh, contributors to that 
said that as far as they're concerned, localization is just racist. Yeah, that it's a sort of part of the, the white supremacist discourse. So I had to think quite hard about this and whether to write a post on localization. But I was kind of confused by that claim because the people who said that localization is racist and part of white supremacy then went on to describe their world they want, which sounds amazingly like localization. So I think it's about the tone and the way people talk about localization, not the content. So I think it's okay to write about localization, basically. Um, <clears throat> so these are a few reports by the Overseas Development Institute um, uh, and by uh, um, um, uh, some other organizations. And the first point from the ODI, which has this um, pro program called From the Ground Up, uh, is that actually localization is one of those classic aid business things where they're describing something that is actually there already long before the aid business and sort of reclaiming it. So localization has always been a feature of emergency response. People help their neighbors when something bad happens. Gosh, um, uh, there are new twists these days. For example, you know, global diasporas, you know, Nepalese in, in, in America or in, in, in Europe respond very quickly to get money when floods happen in Nepal, similarly and all over. So di diaspora communities uh, respond very quickly. Globalization of money flows make all sorts of international flows much quicker. All of this completely outside the aid business. So, and in many cases, yeah, there was a, um, a, a final report of this ODI research program concluded Local, humani local humanitarian action is embedded in its own local and national systems and cultures, largely reliant on its own resources and capacities and separate from the international response. It is also undervalued and underutilised. So, you know, wake up, guys. The aid business is only a tiny part of how people help each other in a, in a humanitarian crisis. Um, then the next stuff I read was um, a piece of work by Safer World and Save the Children Sweden, uh, a paper called Turning the Tables. And this was moving from, you know, critiques of why hasn't localization happened, um, what is it, to actually how do we do it? And, and what I liked about it was rather than come up with a shopping list, they did a big trawl of different attempts at localization, identified four ones which they thought looked promising and then tried to spot common success factors. And this this combination of positive deviance, you know, finding the positive outliers on any issue and then pattern spotting is something I really like. And I think it's got you know huge potential. So the Safe World and, and Save, the, Save the Kids researchers found various common factors in these four, pro, four good localization programs they, they, they identified. One was that you're strengthening civil society as a whole, not just partnering with particular civil society organizations. So you're thinking about the civil society ecosystem in a given country and how do you make it stronger and more able to respond quickly and well to a crisis. You're enabling flexible and adaptive programming. So you're making it possible to move money quickly, to change plans quickly in response to, uh, and you're yeah, allowing local partners to do that. Um, you're supporting CSO's strategies and tactics based on long-term relationships and collaboration underpinned by mutual trust. So the examples, the positive examples they found tended to have Northern funders, INGOs with 10 years or more of working with people, getting to know them, building relationships of trust. And those are essential to actually being able to let go and, in, and, and support local organizations to get better at uh, emergency response. And then the final one, the transfer of risk that, you know, 
risk in the humanitarian sector is often pushed down to local staff, local organisations. They're the ones running the risks. They're the ones who suddenly lose their funding. And that doesn't work. You've got to have a more, a fairer division of risk if you're going to get this kind of local response. So hats off to Safer World and Save the Kids. I thought that was a really useful uh, turning the tables. Recommended. Next post was um, something amazing just happened in Malawi. Um, in June last year, so a year ago, um, its democracy seemed to be in a really bad state. Um, there have been elections which uh, Peter Mutarika had been declared the official winner of and no one believed it. You know, there were all sorts of malpractice, allegations, you know, um, uh, lots of dodgy things going on around the elections. Um, but he seemed to be hanging, to, clinging to power. And then the courts ruled that there had to be a rerun. Now, that's happened once before. It happened in Kenya. And when they did it in Kenya, the same guy won. Here, they ordered a rerun, which happened last week. And a new leader won. So Mutarika lost. And a man with the wonderful name of Lazarus Chakwera, very appropriate, won the election with a big majority, 58% of the poll. And power changed hands. Really interesting. So how did that happen? So I managed to get two really good people to, to, to fill us in on this. So Nick Cheeseman is a professor at uh, Birmingham University who wrote a great book called How to Rig an Election. So this is his thing. Golden Matonga is one of Malawi's best known bloggers and journalists. So d great combination. And they, 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 they sort of summarise the lessons of Malawi. The most important two lessons are that change never has just one cause or driver and that people power is critical to strengthening the independence and effectiveness of democratic institutions. So far-reaching political change required both good leadership. So and the, leadership, the good leadership was all over the place in Malawi. Good leadership of the opposition who actually managed to unite for the, for the follow-up elections when they'd been divided before. Good leadership of the military who made it clear they were not going to step in and support the incumbent, overturn the results. Good leadership of the judiciary who put up with threats, ignored big, juicy bribes being offered and um, uh, good leadership from the Electoral Commission. They did. So that combination was the result of incremental strengthening of democratic institutions over many years. So this thing doesn't just happen. You know, it, it's it's a long term building of institutions. Um, but the blue touch paper, the key the yeah, the, the ingredient X was that people power, people on the streets, encouraged all those institutions to do their jobs um, and, and made them realise that, you know, there was a public groundswell of opinion that supported change and that strengthened the backbone of all those institutions that might have been able to be picked off otherwise. Now, the key question for the people are going to ask is, can that be done elsewhere in Africa or elsewhere around the world, including in Europe and America, I would say? Um, <clears throat> And they, they basically say not that easily. So the final quote is, many countries in the region are starting from a less promising position. In nearby Zambia, the courts are under the thumb of President Lungu. In Zimbabwe, the military is deeply entwined with the ruling party. In Tanzania, civil society groups and the media have to operate under tighter restrictions. For these countries, Malawi will be a valuable role model, but a key lesson is that change will not be quick and it will not be easy. Sorry, I wish I could wave a magic wand, but <clears throat> I think that's really helpful analysis. And the, the post has gone all over the place. It's been very widely read and, and picked up and commented on. Next, I had a, uh, 
uh, Alcinda Onwana and Nayeleti Onwana, who I suspect is her daughter, although I'm not uh, absolutely sure. Um, Alcinda is a professor at the LSE um, and is a specialist on youth movements. And um, I was just planning to do a uh, podcast with her on youth movements when the, when, the, when the pandemic hit. We're still planning to do that if we ever can sit in the same room or we'll just do it online. Anyway, um, Alcinda and Nyaleti Onwana were looking at how youth movements have stepped up on COVID-19 in Africa. And this is an interesting example of something I'm going to be doing a lot more work on, which the shorthand for this is emergent agency. So how has the agency of different groups of people emerged, changed, responded to the pandemic? We've got some uh, uh, a little bit of funding for a joint project between the Inequalities Institute at the LSE and Oxfam to put this together uh, and we're just getting started so you'll be hearing more about this over the coming months but anyway um, <clears throat> Alcindra Nialetti's argument is that um, Africa isn't going to be able to respond to COVID-19 with a sort of healthcare based response or a social safety net based response because it doesn't have the capacities and that community based prevention is going to play a big part and given how young Africa's population is youth movements are going to play a big part in that. And they they did a big trawl, a huge range of examples they've found which are happening already, just spontaneously popping up all over the place, this idea of emergent agency. And they see them as in two broad areas, mitigating contamination. So that's communication, hand washing, access to information, um, checking for fake news, you know, a lot of online stuff, and providing health and related services going out, disinfecting, you know, all sorts of things. And looking after people who are in a bad way, social solidarity with the most vulnerable. And they go through, yeah, there's a huge range of really interesting examples on the post. And then they talk about what is the wider significance of this. And they say, well, firstly, these, these, these uh, initiatives allow youth to engage with the public, the private and the third sector. And secondly, therefore, youth who are often seen as apathetic and uninterested in general social welfare, a level of legitimacy and authority they might not attain. Where they operate, were they operating unilaterally? This is especially true given the leadership roles that elders have traditionally held in the community. So politically, a lot, a lot of youth are uh, you know, both excluded and dismissed in many African countries, not just African countries. This could be a kind of point of entry where people can start to realise the potential and the value of youth organising. So um, interesting that this could be a kind of tipping point for the youth movements in, in Africa. And that's something I definitely want to talk to Alcindra about um, uh, in future. Final post of the week. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm running out of voice here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is another form of localisation. So I talked earlier about localisation in humanitarian response. But another paper on localization is about localization in advocacy. So this is by John Hopkins University and, and it's Gates Institute for Population and Reproductive Health. And they're looking on the they're looking at the future of advocacy on health related issues. But I think it, it applies more widely to people who are interested in in advocacy, this ability of organizations, whether north or south, to influence decision making, to influence the allocation of resources, to change policies. Um, through deliberate campaigns and, and lobbying. So they've got three papers coming out. Uh, the first one is on local ownership, sustainability and grant making. Um, so let's look at the three areas in particular. So on local ownership, it seems that localization of advocacy is, is, is doing just as badly as the other localization I was talking about, the humanitarian response. 
Donors have long wanted to shift programs to local ownership, but the shift has been problematic. Programs are still largely donor driven. But there was one interesting discussion on there on, 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 where they said basically it's not always a bad thing to be donor driven, which, which got my attention because, you know, the, 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 the narrative in aid is, you know, donor driven is bad, local driven is good. And they picked up something which um, has come up in another context of do you work with or against the grain as an external aid agency when you're working in a given country? Um, and so they looked at um, cases where donors insisting on certain policies have actually had long term benefits. And they identified family planning and treatment for HIV AIDS, where donors came in and against huge resistance, especially from national governments, insisted on family planning and uh, HIV AIDS treatments and used their clout to sort of override objections from governments. And they said, if donors had funded only what recipients considered priorities, the gains realised in global health and especially reproductive health would be much more modest today. So I think that's kind of an interesting nuance there. The other two issues on sustainability and grant making are even more depressing than the discussion on localization. On sustainability, donors just don't want to fund long-term projects. In, in the case of advocacy, sustainability means that um, organisations keep working, keep advocating, keep campaigning after the donors moved on. Well, if you're not building up capacity, if you're only funding short-term specific projects, unsurprisingly, they're not going to do that uh, or often not going to do it. Um, and on grant making, you know, um, boring but crucial, Funding cycles are just too short to really build long-term advocacy. And then the paper comes up with a list of fixes, you know, funding better mechanisms that reflect the priorities of local organisations, including longer-term funding, paying more overheads, more core costs, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, no, here we go again. You know, this is a classic format where you identify a problem, you explore the problem, and then you say, and if I wanted to fix it, I would do this. But this is a paper on advocacy. And advocacy has a whole bunch of tools, which is developed um, with, uh, I think, quite a lot of success in terms of how do you bring about change? So if they're talking about changing how the aid business works, surely they should apply their own tools uh, and use their own tools to work out how to do that. So rather than just come up with a wish list, they should actually do stakeholder mapping, power analysis, discuss what kinds of evidence might persuade the aid business. Will the aid business be susceptible at certain moments like you know, the current two twin shocks of um, the COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter. You'd think it probably would, wouldn't you? So, you know, they should be using the advocacy you know, skills to improve the quality of their proposal, and they don't. Um, the other thing is that a bit, yeah, but again, going back to that humanitarian policy, clearly advocacy is going on all the time, all around the world. It's called politics. It's called, it's called you know, social movements. So to say that it's not localising is a very northern view of things i think so i think identifying where you know where spontaneous effective campaigning and advocacy are just happening anyway uh, maybe you don't want or need aid would also have been a useful addition to this paper however so i ended on a slightly critical note um i try not to be too snarky on the blog I don't, don't always succeed and maybe lockdown is getting to me and i really need that holiday but anyway on that note have a great weekend and talk to you next week before i head off i'm only going walking in kent it's not that fancy but i just need to get out of here <laughs>